Good morning, heart and soul. Good morning. So that was essentially our final viewing for this year of our um, Pride video. Yes, so let's give it up just a little more, even at home. Yeah. Just, I'm just feeling really grateful for the opportunity that I have, one, to do the work, to discover what else is there for me to know that I might share with you, um, and the process that is involved in that, because as an African-American woman in these United States, I, I have a good sense when I see that black folks have been elevated, or finally, anytime we are still talking about the first black person doing anything, I already have a sense. I don't know that individual's personal experience, but I have a sense of what it has taken some of us to get to a point. My sense is when we look at the video, if we're not conscious and intentional in our viewing, we can just see amazing artistry and accomplishment and not be thinking about what was required, the trailblazers required. Um, and so I am grateful that we pause for a while and that I encourage you during our pause to look more deeply, to get a sense of that this is not magic. 
You know, it's not that somebody just walked up and said, none of that, that there was persecution and oppression, and there continues to be. And so when we look at our, our video, my prayer is that we do so with eyes that honor from whence they've come. And we can imagine some of what was required in order to accomplish whatever was accomplished. And that it truly took a, vi a village, that there is not a person in history who did whatever it is they accomplished on their own. And especially when we talk about oppressed people, it requires the allies. And so this also gives me an opportunity to call out allyship as well, because it's so essential that we not just lie back in the cut looking for it to look like us or to have exactly our experience, that instead the calling is for righteousness. When you see that it's not working right in the world, that it's not as it could be, that it's not humane, then that's a call. It doesn't mean anybody has to write to you specifically or call you by name and number, but that something within us would awaken. And so somehow in my mind, I think that that's the work we're doing, that we are awakening ourselves, that we gather here with an intention to, to shake ourselves and wake ourselves to a broader awareness of what is possible. When, a, when there's a critical mass love, when there's a critical mass willingness to have it change. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. So today, let me just begin by, by acknowledging that sure enough, we's on an adventure in faith. Sure enough. And some among us and within our community are on a for real time-bound adventure in faith, truly trusting divine guidance. And so I want to lift up in celebration and as a call for prayer, likewise, our 2023 PRAC students who have completed all of the required work. <laughs> They have completed all of their required studies. They have also passed their uh, exam, their written exam. And on Saturday, this coming Saturday, July 1st, they sit for their oral panels. And the oral panel is the final step in licensing. Religious science practitioners are licensed practitioners. And so that licensing process happens as an outcome of the successful completion of the oral panel. So I'm declaring successful completion of the oral panel. Yes, yes. And I'm calling you into allyship, also known as prayer work in this case, to be praying for them. And so I'm lifting up, <clears throat> pardon me, that that is Scott Staub. And, and I'm trying to get it up on mine so I can, oh, well. Okay, uh, Damali Robertson, Nancy Marmalejo, and Robin Vi Carpenter Briscoe. Uh, Miss Bell, though. And so we're just gonna keep them prayed up for this week. They've had their mock panels and they've done well. And so we are expecting a positive outcome and we're not going to just sit expecting. Our expectancy is going to be fueled by our prayer work and our divine knowing. Yes, yes, this is an exciting time in the life of heart and soul. So, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So we're celebrating it. We're knowing it. We're calling it forth. We're claiming it in every way, shape, and form. And then we're sealing that by simply saying, Ashe, Ashe. Amen. Amen, and so it is. So it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
so that's like we are both looking forward and in our part three, our final installment of, of our Pride Month uh, series, we are looking back and moving forward. I love that. That's the San Francisco Pride theme for this year. Looking back. It's a Sankofa kind of kind of theme, isn't it? We recognize it for what it is. It's this idea about drawing from the past even as we move forward. Yes? Yes. So I want to remind you that where we ended, well, let me just acknowledge that I wasn't here. Last week, I was here at the top of the service, but I was not here to speak because Dr. Will was doing the heavy lifting. Yes? And that was good stuff. Well, it was for me. And the people at home, apparently. Because the people in here are, all right, a few people. All right, all right, it's all right. And, of course, Nicholas Beard was here. And we love the combination, absolutely. So today, I just want to tag back that the very towards the end, I think the very last thing I talked about was the film Rejected, which was a... Um, what would I say, a landmark documentary. That would be a way to frame it, yes? A landmark documentary. And I was working to, to view it. As of last, the last Sunday I was speaking, I'd not seen it. I'd looked for it and done my search, and I mentioned it, and I knew somebody would get it to me. And so Deb Hammond, who was tuned in, got it to me. So I will we'll have the link in our recap so that you can also see it. And it, um, remember, it was filmed, produced, directed in 1961. So, but it's interesting because it gives us an opportunity to get a sense of how much or how little has shifted. And I think it's amazing work because in 2023, it's still relevant. It's still relevant. Some of the languaging and the terminology would give us pause because we have relanguaged quite a bit since then. But just in terms of the brilliance of gathering the folks that were gathered and to speak on the subject of homosexuality at the time, because that was the way it was all languaged at the time, to speak about that and to also have um, uh, gay men as a part of those presenting. Because I just want to remind you that up until that time, you just had other folks talking about gay folks. But you did not get to hear their voice. They were not given airtime, mic time, yes? And so this is a landmark just in that alone. It's very interesting. So I'll put it there, not making it required viewing. But I have to tell you, if you want to see it, you want to see it, you ought to see it. So from there, so um, let's see. We were talking, so that's 1961 because I'm moving through my version of a timeline. Clearly not covering everything, just giving highlights that stood out to me in a in particular way. What I realized, the thing that I realized was um, no, you don't need to. Okay, sorry. <laughs> it, was, it was a little personal insight about youth and government and how that really sowed the seeds for me for the way that policy gets made. And, well, now if you've watched, um, what was the little rhyming animated thing from Sesame Street? My lifeline isn't here at all today. Schoolhouse Rock. Thank you very much. That Schoolhouse Rock did a, did a beautiful piece on how a bill gets passed, and so it takes you through. Yes? So you could either rewatch that or you could join an organization. I'm simply suggesting that you have a sense of moving things from this place that we hold of magic. Like, you just say it and hope it, and then stuff happens. That's not how it works. 
We each have a role in it. And then there is a process that unfolds as well. So I'm fascinated by the process, which you will kind of see by what I choose to put on the timeline and then share with you. So on the 4th of July, 1965 in Philadelphia, and they staged this, uh, this boycott right across the street from Independence Hall. There's a group of some 30 folks, and here's what you need to know, hear this part, neatly dressed men and women picketing in an organized orderly circle. And what it reminds me of is the civil rights movement. You never saw, whenever you saw video of folks sitting at the counter, you never saw no dungarees and sweats and hair a mess. Everybody, would, because part of the consciousness was, is that if you can assimilate, you'll have a better chance. If you can look the way that, if, if, if you can at least minimize the outrage to your living, If you can at least look like you could be in the building, in the vicinity, that that would help the cause. Now, I don't have an opinion on whether it did or didn't. I just know that that was the setup at the time and for this time as well. So here we have our gay and lesbian LGBTQ folks playing that game as well playing the game of at least we're going to look the part so you can include us like we ought to be included anyway. Yeah? All right. So this is one of the earliest gay rights demonstrations in the United States. This reminder demonstration, and it's called a reminder demonstration because every 4th of July from 1965 to 1969, and you'll recognize 1969 because it has that ring from Stonewall. Once Stonewall happened, things changed in another way because we recorded that in a very specific way as a, as a demarcation line. So we often talk about before Stonewall and after Stonewall. Well, a lot was happening, including this before Stonewall. So we consider this an important and essential precursor to the wider gay liberation movement. Velvet? Oh, I didn't even bring my purse. Okay, never mind. Never mind. Um, okay, since 1953, here it is. Gays and lesbians were prohibited from working in the federal government. And this was, this was caused by an executive order that Eisenhower signed then. All right, so I want to take us from there to kind of the impact of that. And I want to cite Franklin Edward Kimeny. And he was an American gay rights activist. And he's been referred to as one of the most significant figures in the American gay rights movement. So what happened for him is that um, he did his undergraduate work and then I believe was in the service. And then when he left the service, he did graduate work. And at the point that he completed his uh, thesis work and he was traveling cross country and he was at, the San, was at a San Francisco bus terminal and there he gets arrested. And because the plainclothes officers in that process having been arrested, they tell him that if he, well, he can have probation and if there's no other charge for three years, his record will be expunged. And for that reason, he doesn't fight it. He says, mm, okay, that's I'll, cool, that's what we'll do. However, when he applies and gets hired for a position at the astro in the astronomy department, uh, sorry, he's hired in 1957 by the US Army in their US Army map service. So he gets hired and when they learn of his San Francisco arrest, they question him, but he refuses to provide information. So he's not gonna confirm it, anything for him. 
for them regarding his sexual orientation. So he was fired by the commission soon after. And then in 1958, he's now barred from any future employment by the federal government. So in his case, and this is why I spent some time talking about how folks dress and look and, and assimilate in a way, because he literally describes, and a friend of his also describes how shocked he was that that would be his fate, because he really thought he was towing the line. Haven't we been there? Where you really think you're doing what's required. And even in the execution of what you believe is required, the way you play the game, the way you show up, you still end up in the same situation circumstance. So what happened in this case, after he was fired, he was radicalized. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? So there's that, that point at which you're like, I'm going to play the game. You quack like a duck? Okay, I'm going to quack a little bit. Do, do this, I'm going to do a little bit of that. But at that moment when that happened, it was like the veil was lifted. And he's like, oh, no. So he appealed his firing through the courts, losing twice before seeking review from the U.S. Supreme Court, which declined to consider the case. After devoting himself to activism, he never held a paid job again. Because in the field that he was trained and wanted to work, he could not be hired. And so he was just supported by friends and family for the rest of his life. He eschewed conventional racial designations throughout his life. He consistently cited his race whenever filling anything out or asking as human. Wow. He was a co-founder of the Washington, D.C. branch of the Mattachine Society. And he launched some of the earliest public protests by gays and lesbians with a picket line at the White House in 1965. In coalition with the Mattachine Society and the Daughters of Villatus, the picketing expanded to targeting the United Nations. He got turned out, do you hear me? <laughs> the United Nations, the Pentagon, the United States Civil Service Commission, and Philadelphia's Independence Hall for what became known. See, he's at the beginning of this annual uh, kind of day of remembrance, the annual reminder for gay rights based on Stonewall. He also wrote to President Kennedy asking him to change the rules on homosexuals being purged from the government. Um, in 1963, he and the Mattachine Society launched a campaign to overturn DC sodomy laws. He personally drafted a bill that finally passed in 1993. Now, I need you to hear those dates. So he writes it and is um, advocating for it since 1963. And when it actually happens, it's 1993. But you see, somebody has to stay the course. Somebody, you, I, I know we want to mi microwave the bill. We want to just, somebody write it and hand it to somebody, somebody sign it and have it be done. But this is more what we experience in life is that it takes what it takes. And so we must be willing to bring whatever is required for what it takes. Is any of this making sense? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Um, he also worked to remove the classification as, of homosexuality as a mental disorder from the uh, American Psychiatrics Association from the Manual of Mental Disorders. He said, he's quoted as saying, I don't see the NAACP and core worrying about which chromosome and gene produced a black skin or about the possibility of bleaching the Negro. I do not see any great interest on the part of B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation League on the possibility of solving problems of anti-Semitism by converting Jews to Christians. We are interested in obtaining rights for our respective minorities as Negroes, as Jews, as homosexuals. Why we are Negroes, Jews, or homosexuals is totally irrelevant. And whether we can be changed to whites, Christians, or heterosexuals is equally irrelevant. You know, he's speaking into present-day parlance. He's speaking about 
you know, there was a whole movement for a time that ignored this. It's just like, change it. We'll help you change. And he's, he's bringing this out in the early 60s. It says that after listening to Stokey Carmichael chant Black is Beautiful in 1968, he coined the slogan, Gay is Good. He became the first, in 1971, he became the first openly gay candidate for the United States Congress when he ran for the District of Columbia's first election for non-voting congressional delegate. Following his, his defeat, excuse me, by Democrat Walter Fauntroy, his campaign organization created the Gay and Lesbian Alliance of Washington, D.C., an organization that continues to lobby government and press the case for equal rights, even now. In the mid-70s, he was a part of a group that briefed the White House staff for the very first time. This was the first time that gay rights were officially discussed at the White House. And he's a part of that. He was appointed as the first openly gay member to the District of Columbia's Human Rights Commission in, in the 1970s. He says, I was going to do what I could to see to it that gay people here in Washington got a square deal. And I've done my best to give you a sense of how he kept his word. Just moving on on the timeline. You know, he did the work. He did the work. And there's work for each of us. That's my... That's what I'm hoping is our takeaway, that it's not to copycat. It is to somehow sense what is mine to be and to do. So we talked about last, uh, when last I spoke about the black cat in San Francisco. Well, there was a black cat in Los Angeles as well, a tavern. And on Sunset Boulevard, and it's recognized as the site of the first documented LGBTQ civil rights demonstration. In February of 67, over 200 LGBT patrons of the tavern marched peacefully in a counter-protest against police brutality. This is following a raid on New Year's Eve when underclothed, underclothed, Undercover, plain clothes is what I wanted to say. I just, I was shorthand. That was shorthand. They were in the club, and so at midnight, when they saw same genders kissing, that was, that's what lit the spark. Uh-huh. Somebody said, they had nothing better to do. Apparently not. They thought that was the thing to do. So that's 1967, and that a boycott and demonstration that happens there. And then, of course, you know, in 1969, the actual Stonewall riots. Uh, similarly, you have, you know, plain clothes folks inside and then the folks waiting outside to, um, to torment folks is what it amounts to. So what I want to remind you of is how we flow in consciousness. And we know this on some level because none of us have been outside of, of some level of oppression and discrimination. And so we know the call. We, we can hear the coaxing of the victim consciousness. We are often faced with that draw, that pull that says, They've done you wrong. And if you, have, if you can prove they've done you wrong, you have every right to just fall out, to just say, I can't. I can't. And it's because, and who could, who could really question it? But you see, that's the wrong question. The question is, how do I stay whole? How do I see myself? as a part of 
as worthy? How do I see myself as having everything required for my journey? I remind you that this, this quadrant, this mindset, is all about perceiving that it's being done to me. We saw what it being done to Kimeni, how it, it radicalized him in a sense. It rather than shy away, he stepped forward right into the fray. He said, it happened to me, but it doesn't have to happen to everybody forever. So look, we can see in this, my prayer is that you can see in this, that it's up to you what, what you see, in fact, that it's entirely up to you how it is that you, what you choose out of this. The choice is yours. Dare I say for me and my house, I'm choosing heaven. That there, heaven is a consciousness, a way of thinking, a way of sensing what's possible. It's a come from. It's a position to take. I'm choosing heaven today. I'm choosing right now. What is it that you're choosing? And if nothing comes to mind positive in this moment, fill in joy for right now. Join us in our theme for, for June as we're moving towards the end of this month. And next month, you know, we'll have another theme. But that won't stop you from singing, I'm choosing joy. So this is, we, we have literally filled your take-home container with joy and abundance and love and, and all the good stuff that you want. Yes, yes. So this is a part, this is a part of our practice. I've, I've reminded you, don't put the slide up there because I'm not going there, but I reminded you of Ecclesiastes 3 where, where we know that there's a time for everything. So this is why you got to have your little take-home container with you because there's a time for, for darkness and there's a time for light. This, this, there's nothing about what we teach and endeavor to practice that inoculates you so that you don't have some experiences that challenge you. And in fact, you can count on them because they are the stuff, just like if this is, you know, coming here is like hiring a trainer. And so in that sense, you can count on somebody stretching your muscles beyond the point that you want it to in a given moment. Like one more rep. You know, you feel it. You're like, no, I thought I was going to, no, just come on now. And then next week, we're going to do another 10. Like, I ain't already done 50. I thought 50 just for the rest of my life. No, because you've signed up. You've signed up for the expansion of your consciousness. You've signed up to transform your life in all of the ways you've been dreaming of and praying for. You've signed up for the transformation of your heart, for the clarity in your mind. You've signed up for love to be central for your life experience. And so this is going to be a part of it. This is your opportunity, is to choose consciously and intentionally. Today, I'm choosing today. So look here. From when I was last speaking, I, I brought um, the writing from um, Dr. Daniel Morgan's uh, guidance for a spiritual journey for June 10th. And I didn't get to it, because if y'all recall, I just was, you know, got carried away. And so what I'd like to do is to share it with you today. Because although it's date-bound in the book, it's not in consciousness. So how about if we do this? Because what? We have already sung that we are choosing joy today. Yes? All right, so going with that 
as our conscious intention. That is our, would you understand if I say you'll come from? Okay, so look at here. Here's where affirming. I'll read, and if you will just then recite after me. How about that? That way you hear it, you can make your decision. Y'all done already read it and taken photos. Y'all done already done it. But come on, just humor me here. I am, yes, I am about live. no, no, no. I'm choosing joy today. I am about living a full, happy, joyful, and successful life. A joy-filled life. I face the reality that if I think weakness and limitation, They become necessary and inevitable. <laughs> but look at here. If I think health, happiness and harmony, I break any seeming cycle of otherness by which I have been previously plagued. I declare... I, I am a part of God. The divine hole from which I was pressed out. My daily experience, my daily experience expresses my expectation of life sublime. I'm choosing joy today. And so it is. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes. So where we left off is Stonewall. That next year in June, we have the first Gay Pride Week in New York City. So it's the year after that, LGBT people from across New York City gather to commemorate the first anniversary of the gay liberation movement. That's the gift that Stonewall gets. That's one of the many gifts, is the declaration and the way that folks held it was that that started the gay liberation movement. My prayer is that with all you've heard me say, this being the third part, you realize it didn't start it. It shifted it in a way that it has never gone away since. A, a, a lot, here's what y'all have told me, that there have been so many things that I've shared that many of you did not know about. And it's because of the way we held Stonewall in a different way. We've, we kind of froze Stonewall in time to ensure that everybody would have an awareness of that, but that was not so for all of the things, many of the things that I've shared before. So that's what happened there. And so we have that in 1970. In 72, we have the first San Francisco Pride Parade. And there were about 2,000 marchers and about 15,000 spectators. So folks showed up for it in San Francisco in 1972. Excuse me. <coughs> so... There are laws on the books that for all the marching, for all the boycotting, are not yet changed. Remember, Eisenhower signed an executive order in 1953. Well, it's now in the 1970s, and it's still on the books. So you still have folks. We, we understand this when we think about voting rights acts and so forth, yes? So we have, we have some experiences that we can apply to this if we're willing. So here we have, <clears throat> in 1975, the US Civil Service Commission ended a ban on gays and lesbians in the federal civil service. The ban began in 1953. In 1977, the State Department lifted a policy barring gays from employment in the Foreign Service. So you begin to get the 
you know, it's, it's loosening up a bit here. And then in 1995, 20 years later, I need you to, I'm hoping you're keeping up with the sense of the dates, that there's no magic here, that the pressure is on, that folks are choosing freedom, folks are choosing liberation in a way that they are standing in it so consistently that things are beginning to change. Now, when you ask the question about whatever it is that's bothering you about today, and your question has sis, is stated something like, when is it gonna change? I'm intending that this gives us some clues. It will change when we change. It will change when we make it a priority, when we believe it. It's like almost a critical mass tilt that it's not what you tell people, but it'll be that moment when within you, no more. I'm choosing freedom for all this day. I'm choosing liberation for all, not just the people who look like me, not just the people who act like me, not just the people who live where I live. Yeah, okay. <clears throat> so in 1995, President Bill Clinton signed an executive order saying that the government does not discriminate on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, national origin, disability, or sexual orientation in granting access to classified information. Major shift. Because that was a lot of the, the undercurrent, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> the undercurrent of this was the conversation that folks couldn't be trusted. You see? So the order ex was explicitly repealed, like every detail about it, when President Barack Obama signed his last executive order. That was to just clean it up. Now, a lot of this, some of y'all know. And a lot of us didn't know that that last executive order, maybe we knew and didn't remember, but we do now, that before he left the room, made sure that that piece was done. Now, locally, there's something I, I, I want to, I want you to get how essential collaboration is and the clarity of mind to get things done in the way that we all want it done. We want it done in a way that it's for real done. So look, in San Francisco, in 2009, Willie Brown uh, participated in a project that was the Moscone history, the Moscone oral histories. So he was interviewed. And I want to share some of that because it helps us to understand somebody in here will see more clearly what their work is. And somebody who already has that as their work will see more clearly what their next step is. And some of us will see where we need to support, where the opportunities are for us to weigh in. So in this interview, Willie Brown is, uh, begins, at least the portion that I'm sharing with you, begins by quoting, um, uh, we're talking about the California legislature is where they are. So uh, John Burton said that the penal change had to do with gay and lesbian rights and whether people could be prosecuted for having sexual activities with someone of the same sex. So that's just establishing what we're talking about. So Burton says that and he gets up and he says he's going to be supportive of the revisions to the model penal code. And the place is bustling, this is in the California legislature, and Willie Brown says he got up and said to be very clear, while I will promise you I'm going to support the model penal code revision, I promise you one more thing. We don't need to wait for the whole model penal code. That could take years. What I'm going to do is to lift that section out and make it a separate bill unto itself. So some, you see that advocacy, allyship, because we could do the whole thing. That's the idea that's coming up, but somebody... Our brother Willie Brown says, yeah, we could do that. But that's going to take longer than we have, longer than we're willing. 
So let's do it this way. How about, I'll just snatch that part out. We'll, we'll address that part separately. About five to seven minutes later, he says. Now, of course, this is years later, but I'm just saying. Seven, five to seven minutes later, he says, when the place began to quiet down, Burton got up and said, and I'll co-author it. And five more minutes of standing ovations and screaming you would never believe. That was the presence of the advocates and allies. They introduced the legislation in 1969, and it was promptly out the door so fast. It died so quickly you didn't even know it was introduced. He said, we kept introducing it, and we kept introducing it. Finally, we got to the point where it became, six years later, we got to the point where it became fashionable, he says. We moved it out of the house. We got it over to the Senate, and there George Moscone took over. He picked it up from there. He says, the most dramatic occasion of a president of the Senate, who happens to be the lieutenant governor, Dimely, casting the deciding vote in a 2020 tie. But here's, here's the logistics of it. If we, just, if we just go to the end of the story, we miss the strategy. We miss that somebody has to care enough to do the extra work. You understand what I'm saying? Okay, so look here. So Moscone orchestrated a 2020 tie. And the way that it was orchestrated was that in the early morning when the bill was to be taken up in the Senate after it had gone out of committee, through all the kinds of things we did to get it out of the House and the Senate committee, it was announced that day that Mervyn Dimely, the lieutenant governor, would be gone. He would be out of the state. So the Senate would be without his leadership. That announcement was made and he left town. I need you to hear this. Okay. Pay attention. Don't be dozing at this part. Wake, if they're dozing next to you, wake them up. Now we all knew, Willie Brown says, Georgia's programming, that he was going to try to get it to where it was a 20-vote tie. And sure enough, five, four or five hours later, the debate started, and the debate went, on for, debate went on for a while. Republicans were adamant that this bill had to die. They couldn't wait to get on. And when they got to 20 on their side, Moscone was at 18. He moved one more vote on, and then that last vote didn't want to vote. Nate Holden, senator out of L.A. We remember Nate. And he kept himself in the Senate lounge so he wouldn't have to go on record. I finally went into the lounge because he'd made a commitment to me. Somebody has to care enough to take the extra step. He walked him out there and he cast the vote. Willie walked Nate out and Nate cast the vote, which made it 2020. So now you got it tied. Okay, look at here. If y'all understand this, you now have it tied and the lieutenant governor is not there to break the tie. So here's what you need to know is ain't nobody worried about it now. It's okay that it be 2020 because it ain't gonna go nowhere, it's just tied and he can't vote, they think. And that's the point at which Moscone put a call on the House. Not only did it have to get to 2020, he had to keep all 20 of his votes on the floor to avoid either an adjournment motion or a lifting of the call motion before he could get Dimely back. So remember how they announced that he wasn't gonna be there? It made it easy for folks to go to 2020. But they didn't know they were going to send a private plane to get him back. <laughs> so we got him out. We got Dimely out of Colorado on a private plane, flew him back, walked him into the chambers, and Moscone all day long holding his 20 hostages so that there could be no movement on that bill, literally. Mr. Dimely walks in and casts the deciding vote, vote on the bill that was on the floor, jockeyed under Moscone's leadership. The most dramatic occasion for me on the legislature, and I suspect for George as well, Willie Brown says, was that occasion. So look. Keep your hand wide open. Always let the sun shine through. Ah, oh, because you can never lose a thing 
What? Y'all know the rest. If it belongs to you. But you're going to have to do your work. You're going to have to do your work and engage and be present and hold the, fan the flame constantly. You never know when and what it will take. But throw it away. All the resistance, all the doubt, all the fear. I invite you to gently allow your eyes closed as we go into our benediction. What a good God day it has been and will continue to be. I give thanks for all that has transpired this morning. I give thanks for the word we have received this morning. I give thanks for Reverend Dr. Andriette Earle and the wisdom she has shared with us this morning. I give thanks for the musical inspiration that came through Karen Smith and Valerie Joy Fidmont. I give thanks for each person who showed up bright and early this morning to be in service to make sure the lights were on and check the sound and set up the computers and ensure that the videos were streaming properly and greeted each and every one of us and helped us find seats. I give thanks for those who made sure we had nourishment in our bodies. I give thanks for the, the ones who are supporting this service virtually, making sure that those who are watching from the comfort of their homes or while they are on the road are supported while we all tune into Heart and Soul Center of Light on this beautiful Good God morning. I give thanks for the Board of Trustees who handle all the business so that we can show up in this space each Sunday and any time we need to be here. And I give thanks for you, those sitting in these seats and those tuning in from afar. I am grateful that you showed up. And now as we leave this space, I say Godspeed knowing and trusting that we are all held in a safe and sacred space. I invoke divine protection today and all days, knowing that it is done, it is done well, because it is done in, through, and as God, and so it is.